0: You are listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. I am Oliver Tonby, your host and chairman of McKinsey Asia. In this series, we feature leaders from across the region to discuss the forces, the opportunities and the challenges that are shaping the future of Asia.
1: Welcome, welcome everyone to this episode of our Future of Asia podcast series. Today's topic is a new operating model for the next normal, and what lessons can we learn from agile organizations? I am joined today by three dear colleagues. I am joined by Mary Meaney. Uh, She's a senior partner out of our Paris office, and she leads our global leadership and organization practice. I am also joined by David Prelong, He's a senior partner based out of New Zealand. And he leads the firm's, the McKinsey's Enterprise Agility Practice globally. And finally, I am joined by Hejin Kang. She is a partner based in Seoul and leads organization and leadership practice out of Seoul. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I'm really delighted to have you on today. Before we kind of get into the topic, I would love to warm up and just hear from you, which is... Tell me, what is one interesting learning or experience that you have had during this COVID era that we are now in? Mary, would you like to go first?
2: For
3: me, one of the really interesting things has been the importance of purpose. So even before the crisis, we knew that purpose was really important. But I think what I've seen and what I've observed both within our firm, but also with my clients is that actually having a really strong sense of purpose and meaning has been so critical. And it's helped energize and re-energize people as we've gone through some pretty turbulent times. And it's really come through as one of the most essential elements.
1: Perfect, thank you, Mary. David? I get to spend a lot of time with
4: my kids, during the lockdown, and I confess to not being exactly sure how that would go. <laughs> I've, I've learned so much about them, the way they look about life, their values, and I recognize many of our values in that, and, and came away absolutely uh, fascinated and full of admiration for them, and, and luckily for my wife as well.
2: Thank you, David. up. Had- Yeah, I learned uh, professionally that I was surprised to see my clients was productivity was perfectly fine when they were working from home uh, remotely. And secondly, personally, I was surprised to see my mom actually using the online uh, e-commerce app perfectly fine to uh, shop around.
1: Thank you. And I think this exemplifies a little bit. It's a great intro to the topic of today, which is, you know, is there a new operating model in the next normal? I think what we have seen in the last several months is there've been many devastating parts of COVID, the impact on lives and livelihoods, but we have also seen COVID as an incredible accelerator, accelerator of change, accelerator of technology adoption. Uh, We've also seen COVID as a differentiator, frankly, differentiator between companies, between sectors. So let's zoom in now and talk a little bit about from the organizational angle, from the operating model angle, what you, the three of you have been seeing. Let's start with, let's just start at the high level. What happened to companies during the COVID-19 crisis? And let's start global. Mary.
3: Thanks so much, Oliver. I think the first thing I would say is, of course, there's been enormous variation from one industry to the next, from one geography to the next. But as you mentioned, there have been some really interesting themes, some really interesting learnings. And, and one of the things that's really struck me has been this extraordinary acceleration of the pace and speed of business. And I've seen this play out in so many ways. Um, just to give a few examples, uh, Best Buy had a plan for curbside pickup and delivery that was supposed to be 18 months. But when lockdown hit, they went operational in two days. If I think about Majid Al-Futain in the Middle East, as they saw their cinema business, you know, which was very hard hit, they were able to retrain their ushers and and their ticket collectors almost overnight to work in other parts of their business, the grocery, retail business that was booming. If I think about one of my luxury goods clients, they pivoted their factories from perfumes to hand sanitizers. So we saw incredible things happen. And at the core of this acceleration, the speed, there were a number of, of consistent patterns. So one of them was boundaries and silos that suddenly seemed to be removed, which then helped to accelerate the, p- the pace of decision-making. You saw teams of talent uh, come together to really focus on the most critical problems and really reduce the time that would otherwise have been spent trying to get lots of people aligned. We saw leaders really go to the front line and spend lots of times energizing teams and connecting with them at a very personal level. And we saw collaboration and and leadership and new technology and remote working adopted overnight. So lots of fascinating things happening. And I think one of the critical issues is how do we learn from this so that we create, you know, a whole new level of performance, not just during the crisis, but after the crisis.
1: Thank you, Mary. Let's zoom in into Asia. David.
4: The same happened in Asia. Asia has had historically a very high metabolic rate to start with. This has accelerated further during the crisis to the point where it's challenged some of the beliefs we all held about how large businesses are run. There are several of such beliefs under pressure now, but I'll mention a few. The first one is the speed at which the organization can work, which Mary talked to. Number two is the notion of efficiency. Number three, collocation. And let me go through each one of those in turn. The speed we, we all used to the notion that large corporations face complex decisions. These decisions take time. What we've seen through the crisis is an ability to really focus on a few decisions that matter, bring the team together, and really get on with that. Whether you are telco or bank that needs to reprice their products in the heat of the action. These are decisions that typically go through a lot of committees and so on. That singularity of purpose has meant that this decision got made literally on the fly and with the same level or better in terms of risk and financial scrutiny. The second one is efficiency. Every large company has made efforts over the years to really go after high levels of productivity, not having people where you don't need people. The reality is that the output of many organizations during the crisis was higher on certain dimensions than before with far less people. We talked to to certain banks, uh, one of the banks in Southeast Asia, where they realized that the number of people that had dialed in via VPN uh, was a third less. However, the productivity in terms of processing request was 20% higher. And it, that goes to show as well the number three on collocation. We always knew that collocation was very important to coordinate. But Organizations that have an explicit rhythm that agreed what to do, the implementation of these very explicit rhythms of what are we going to do, who's going to do that, how do we check in on the results, meant that their performance when they went remote was actually better than what they went inside. And the notion about do we work better remotely or how much remote can we stand is still up in the air. But this was something that was unthinkable only a few months ago.
1: Wonderful. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, David. Anushif, so listening to this, um, and perhaps, Hyejun, you can elaborate. W- what is it we can learn from these large company experiences about operating in this crisis?
2: Yep. I think what we can learn from this crisis is that one, uh, this allows companies to be much more focused. So they, they focus on the most important things and therefore they can remove the hierarchy and unnecessary bureaucratic processes and unnecessary things on their plate. Secondly, especially for the ones with already instituted as their mechanisms and practices in their organization, what well, we noticed that it, they are much more uh, productive and fast in terms of the adopting uh, and reacting to the crisis.
1: Thank you. Mary or David, would you, do you want to elaborate on uh, or, or expand on that?
3: Sure so let me let me just quickly build on on one of the points that Hai Jin raised which I think is a really interesting learning from this crisis which is we are seeing consistently that those organizations that had adopted agile ways of working have weathered the crisis better and are coming out of it stronger and faster than those that didn't And in a way, this is something we would have expected, Uh, but the crisis has really demonstrated the value and the amount of performance improvement that you can get when you adopt agile ways of working with a real clarity of purpose but being very dynamic on where and how you allocate resources given, you know, an incredibly fluid external environment. And so I think one of the the key learnings is how do more organizations really embrace agility and, and really go for that enterprise agility, which has been proven to help us in periods of huge uncertainty and in periods of business as usual. And
1: you guys make this sound very positive and optimistic, if I'm allowed to say so. I am sure that, you know, for the CEOs and the top teams, that's not everything has been rosy. There must have been some challenges. So can you say a little bit about what are the, some of the difficult things, too?
3: Of course, Oliver, and you're absolutely right. There have been huge challenges. Some sectors are literally struggling for survival. This is an enormous human cost, an enormous economic crisis. And I would add, you know, we've seen tremendous, amazing things happening but they have sometimes come at a cost, right? They've come at a very real cost where a lot of the CEOs I'm talking to and senior leaders, frankly, they've been talking about sleeping at the office, right? It hasn't been sustainable. They treated this like a sprint and they realized that it's now a marathon, but it's a marathon that doesn't have an end. We don't know how long this is going to last. And so one of the big challenges is how do we make this more sustainable, especially for our senior leaders where it can very easily be 24 seven we're seeing, you know, huge spikes in issues around mental health. Um, and so I think there is a very real risk and challenge and, and human uh, cost that has also come as we've weathered, you know, this extraordinary situation. And it's really important to spend enough time to make sure that, you know, leaders do put their own oxygen masks on first before they can help others, and that there is enough focus and attention around the health, um, both of the individuals as well
2: as the, of the organization's I would like to add one thing if it is okay, um, that for the larger companies that you know we observed that they relatively reacted pretty well. Versus their supply chain, the smaller, medium-sized companies who actually needed to supply the goods and services to those companies, they are often more impacted by the crisis because of the shortage of the practices, very instituted practices, or because of the shortage of the, of the digital tools to support them to work. Uh, under the remote working environment so when we look at you know recovery i think we should make sure that we not only uh, look at you know larger companies but also the full ecosystem they play on
4: i'd like to come back to one of the points that mary you you mentioned is this notion of uh, the aviation analogy about putting the oxygen mask uh, on you first and and i'll extend the analogy to the front end of the Pilots are easily victim of mental overload, which I think is a bit what happened to, to many leaders in organizations. A huge amount of uncertainty, a lot of decisions to be made quickly, very important decisions as well. And what we have tagged agile or disagile way of working is what pilots call load shedding. If you think through the, the different elements that we we, we describe, focus on fewer things have flat structures, uh, plan more often, accept that not all your decisions will be good forever, have a much simpler access to people and how, you, how they combine to, to go after that. All of that is effectively a search of simplicity. It's about having fewer priorities. It's about having teams that don't need to coordinate too much. It's just, it's very simple. We get one team per task and that's it. It drastically simplifies the interaction inside and also a clarity of purpose for a period of time that correlates with huge efficiency. We know that multitasking is bad. It's bad individually. It's even worse when you apply it to an organization. So I I like this analogy because it reminds me that the search, eventually, it's a search for simplicity and and to make it easier to operate, which then translates into better products, more satisfied employees, and you just get more done.
1: So what I hear... You're saying I'm picking up the words focus, simplicity, speed. Can I just ask? I know that many, you know, for large companies, you know, are the systems in place? You know, the IT systems, the processes they have. What happens to those? You know, because I, I assume that sometimes they are not in line with this new world, this new operating model that you're describing, David.
4: I think that's right, and, and this is the art of of the change and. I should say up front that there is no one answer that fits all. Uh, rather, it's very important to reflect on what has worked for us through this crisis and what are the elements that we want to retain from that. And, and we think about that on a few dimensions. Oliver, you mentioned a few of those. One, which is very important, is how many things do we want to pursue at any given point in time? That's a conscious decision. And I think it's easiest to talk about that in the wake of having operated on just the most important things. There's a structural element of this is, uh, there is a good thesis now that the classic functional hierarchies could work in some situations, but are no longer the most effective in all situations. And probably the most important, uh, you've mentioned capabilities in the form of tech, but how people get deployed. Our generation has grown up thinking that, you know, you belong to a certain part of the organization. You are within, you're a marketing person within a certain product, within a certain division. The future might be quite different. It might be you are marketing people, a person, and you have access to a whole lot of opportunities across the organization, depending on where your skills are needed. That fluidity uh, requires a conscious decision to let people go after the opportunities they wanna, they, they, they want to work on. It also has quite a few implications about how you think about who are my people as a manager, but also for the continued need to find a home and a development, which is decoupled from their particular uh, team function and so on. But again, the most important message is that these choices have been canvassed quite extensively by many organizations in the past. They just need to be put in front of the leadership and become the object of a conscious choice.
0: Asia's standing in the world has changed and it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast.
1: Thank you. I want to I want to shift topics now. And as I say no, we've heard a lot of changes companies are experiencing. Many of those changes it sounds like there are things that we want to keep So let's start talking about how do companies actually retain these benefits when we're now going into the new normal? How do they retain those benefits? Who who wants to take the first stab at that?
3: Well, I'll I'll take a crack at it, Oliver. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, we've talked about this incredible acceleration of the pace and speed of decision making. And a lot of the CEOs I talk to say, look, this is extraordinary. This is amazing. And I don't ever want to go back. Right. And, and one of the big questions they have is how do I bottle this magic? How do I hardwire some of the really positive things that I've seen during this crisis? So it actually becomes part of our next normal. Right. And, and as we start to return to the workplace, we actually do a reset of the workplace. And so I think the first step is actually to take a little bit of time to pause and reflect. And to engage with, of course, leaders, but people across the organization on what have we learned, right? This has been an unbelievable experiment. It hasn't been an experiment we designed. It's certainly not an experiment we would have chosen, but it is an experiment that we can really learn from. And so a lot of the organizations that I'm working with, they're taking the time to sort of... Pause and reflect, and get lots of input from across the organization about what is working really well. What do we like? What are the strengths? What are the unexpected positive surprises that we've seen? And how do we make sure that we actually hardwire that in? And I'll just give one example around decision making. So during this crisis, you know, and we've all talked about this, you know, things have moved incredibly fast by necessity, and so a lot of the organizations that I talked to are saying, okay, let's let's actually take this crisis you know process this crisis minimum that is so fast and often goes you know from global to local and 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 really cuts out a bunch of layers let's instead of going back to the old ways of doing things let's say this is the new normal but maybe we want to selectively add you know a few things back in maybe a process or a governance step or a regulatory check But the burden of proof is on adding anything back in, right? And so the idea is how do we take some of the very positive things and make sure that we do a reset, that we use this unfreezing moment to actually reshape, reinvent, uh, and and reimagine the organization for the future? So that would be one thing I would really encourage companies to do is to really pause and reflect and say, what can we learn from this? And how do we make sure that we embed the positives into the next normal?
4: And this has a shelf life. I believe that some choices can be captured much more easily today than they will be only in a few weeks. A few examples, in fact, Oliver, you and I were were talking to uh, the CEO of a large uh, Asian company last week, I believe. And the reflection was, look, we have quite a few policies. One of them is an informal policy about how we dress. Now, of course, when we've all been behind the screens talking to each other of uh, Zoom or Teams, that kind of fell away. Now that people are going back to work, what do we do with this policy? And there were three choices. The first one is the policy gets back to what it used to be. There's a choice number two that someone suggests, maybe we need a different policy. And the hope push, which I think is exactly right, is why do we even need a policy? These are choices that will be available for only a few weeks before the assumption snaps back to what it used to be. There's also a few decision path or decision structures. One example is um, is a, a bank in Australia. All these credit decisions take typically a long process, a lot of committees. They resolve to effectively we just need the three senior exec in the room every morning at eight o'clock to make these decisions. That's actually not a bad model. It probably beats in terms of effectiveness and efficiency, the, the former process. Now, how much of that? do they want to retain? I think if you wait a few months, the natural uh, tendency will be for that to go back to what it used to be because it felt safe, it felt under control. So I fully agree with you, uh, Mary. It's, there's, there's a sense of before it freezes back, let's just get the things out that we want to keep and cherish
2: yeah i would like to just add the anecdote that i see in the companies that uh, in korea the company uh, ceo that i see he he basically asked his staff to codify what's called the cl- crisis management playbook so basically by each decisions etc he basically codified what has happened to make us to speed up our decisions and basically cut and set the layers uh, and decision making steps to the level that they experienced before, I mean, uh, during the COVID-19. And second thing that he has, he has done is to basically set the hardware, uh, set the hardware, meaning that the work hours, and then as well as the how many days you work from home. So for example, he said that one or two days of the week, they basically let the people work at home. So in a way, repeat the, repeat the hardwares and boundaries of the working conditions to make sure that the organizations begin to adjust to the next normal, and I think uh, that's absolutely the right thing to do. And a lot of the other companies are now following, so uh, we see that uh, that the changes are happening.
3: Hi Jen, I just want to maybe pick up on that point because I do think one of the things a lot of companies are thinking about right now is is this whole remote working or hybrid working. And you know, one of the things I think a lot of organizations have been surprised at how well it has worked. But at the same time, one of the reasons it's worked well is because there has been social capital, right? We could pivot overnight to using technology, being remote, having virtual teams because we knew each other. We had relationships. We had built up a culture and a way of working over many years that meant that actually that was a lot more straightforward than many of us expected. But I think one of the questions is, how, how do we want to set things up going forward, right? And in all the surveys that we've done, the vast majority of people we, we interview and survey actually, you know, quite like some remote working. They don't necessarily want to pivot 100%, but, you know, typically 65, 70% actually would like some kind of hybrid working. And I think that then requires, you know, a lot of thought around how do you maintain and build culture and social capital in a context where, you know, some of the teams may be remote, you may have re- hybrid situations. What are the kinds of skills and capabilities that your leaders need to have in order to be really effective at, at leading a virtual team? How do you think about which types of activities may still need to be there in person, right? Because they're collaboration intensive or innovation intensive or require real relationship building. So I think there's a whole series of, of really fascinating questions that organizations are, are wrestling with, especially around that remote working, uh, remote working theme.
1: ask. I've heard each of you talk about decisions and how many decisions are we talking about in this new world? You know, how many decisions need to be on the mind of a a CEO and what what are some of the examples of those decisions? Uh, David, do you want to take that one?
4: As companies decide on the new operating model, there are 30 decisions they have to make. Some are are fairly straightforward. Um, Everybody would agree that they need to be made. Uh, Mary mentioned it. One of the very important ones is purpose. Coming out of this, what is the purpose that we want to have? Most companies have one. Is it still valid? These 30 decisions do not need to change from what they were. They just need to be reviewed in light of what we learned through the crisis and sharpened in some some instances. Um, It's very important to mention that these decisions need to be debated i'll give you one particular example Um, how often we plan and allocate resources the default assumption is a yearly rhythm now there's a lot of evidence to say that doing that more frequently that the quarterly typically is better is now the time to change that? It's not a decision that just t- gets taken lightly by typically the CFO. It's a decision that needs to be evaluated for all its implications. Because once you do that, you need to be able to abandon some priorities every three months. You need to be willing to move people around every three months. The, the, the point being that it's, these are not rocket science decisions, but they do represent a commitment and therefore need to be debated and made by the collective of the management team?
3: Maybe just to, to build on what David said, I think one of the really important things for senior leaders to do is to decide on where they can have the highest and best impact, right? And that means actually focusing their decision-making on the game-changing decisions, on the things that matter most, that will most create value for their organization. And so, at least what I see is the best teams are really clear about what are the priorities, where you know, they should really be focusing their time. So what is that relatively small number of decisions that genuinely drives the company's value agenda? And and that, in order to create time for that, it means clearing out decisions that can and should be made elsewhere, typically by people that are closer to the action. So the second part of that is you need to push authority to employees, to teams at the edges who have accountability for outcomes. So, you know, especially the more routine day to day decisions, the more frequent decisions, the ones that, you know, may have less of that game changing impact, but are still important. That's where you want to empower. And I think one of the things we've learned from this crisis is there has been a lot of empowerment and a lot of CEOs are saying, you know, we've pushed decision making really close to the front line, to the markets. And people by and large have made not only faster decisions, but often high quality decisions. So why would we ever change that again? So I think it's both about being really clear on what are the game-changing decisions that only the senior leadership you know, can and should be focusing on and making sure they really are focusing their time on those. And in order to clear up their agenda so that they can do that, how do you then push authority and decision-making to employees, to teams at the edges, and make sure that they've got the skills to do it and that you can hold them accountable?
4: And I would I would even go further than that. The The transition that you described, Mary has a lot to do with or it's very similar to transition from a parent-child relationship where you know the senior leader is expected to know not only what needs to get done but how to do it by when and so on so the transition towards much more of an empowering an empowerment of the line and the closer to the line, typically the better the idea of how to make things work is, is a fundamental shift that we've seen through the crisis. And so fundamental shift as well, that we've seen for organizations that have gone to this new operating model. But, and, and I, I, I wouldn't like people to think that it's easy. So this has been the hardest single thing that they had to do as a leadership team is to provide guidance of such precision, that it forces trade-offs. And face the fact that if we point the organization that way and we focus the organization on only these two or three choices you mentioned, Mary, it means that there are seven or 17 or 27 things that will not get done anymore. It's it's a degree of trade-off, of explicit trade-off that is very hard for leaders to make. And in that sense, it has been quite hard and I wouldn't underestimate the courage that it takes to provide that level of direction to the organization.
1: Can I ask uh, one topic that we have not discussed, which I suspect is in your in the in the list of the 13 decisions, David. but what about external partnerships? That must be an important factor for operating models for companies going forward in a world where there is more speed, more innovation, more creativity required. How do you think about external partnerships uh, when it comes to the new operating model?
4: We've seen a lot of these partnerships emerge from the crisis, where suddenly the organization did not have the capabilities and reached out and said, can we work together on this? Whether this was in the software, we've seen a lot of retailers that went straight to to, uh, high-tech companies, in some instances that they would have considered their competitors, direct competitors to complement that set of capabilities. Here again, it has a lot to do with the notion, I think Marie mentioned, which is you assemble the team you need. And increasingly, that's not just the people who are around on the same payroll as you are. It implies partnerships, but it also implies customers. The best way to design a product, arguably, is to bring one of our customers inside the design team and really test it from the get go and put it out there. That openness is difficult. It's not natural. Confidentiality is a barrier, uh, a degree of trust and ways of working. But it is part of that empowerment of we want to assemble the best team regardless of where that team sits.
2: I would like to say, uh, talk about the one example from SK. We see two different types of the decisions. One is at the corporate CEO level they had to deal with the challenges from competitors coming from overseas, global competitors like Netflix. And they had formed uh, alliances uh, with, uh, with the different broadcasting companies, uh, Korean broadcasting companies and South and broadcasting companies, and launched the OTT uh, with those combined kind of eco-partnership. And the other partnership that I observed at the team level was that The team who's now dedicated the customer mission, specifically targeting uh, one one customer segment, such as the kids, now the the team actually went out to to strike the partnership uh, with other companies like uh, Mart, HyperMart to actually generate the new offerings that, that satisfy the customer needs in that specific segment. So I think the ecosystem partnership happens not only at the corporate level, but also at the team level, especially with the dedication and delegation that the team can have under the new operating model.
3: So I, I would agree with what David and Hijin said. I, th- I think we're seeing much more importance in really building a strong ecosystem. And there's been a huge shift, right? So old thinking was you gain leverage and control, especially around supply chain so you can win in the marketplace, right? You optimize for efficiency. I think the new thinking is ecosystems, first of all, are much broader than that. But even with supply chain, you know, optimizing for efficiency is important, but we also have to optimize for resilience, for effectiveness, et cetera. So, and then in terms of this this much broader definition of ecosystems, I think what we're seeing is actually value is created, you know, in, in really fascinating new ways, right? You have partners coming together to share data, code, skills, communities creating value together, and where those who play well together actually create enormous value and really beneficial partnerships and excel beyond those who just go it alone. And I think we're seeing increasingly, you know, blurring boundaries, quasi-employees, collaborative relationships around the value chain that help scale up and help each organization contribute its unique value. And I think the most successful companies are taking, you know, more expansive definitions of, you know, what is an employee and who is a partner and more creative collaborations. And I think we're going to continue to see more of that.
1: I want to double click. I heard you say, Mary, they create enormous value. So, this let me call it the new modern organization the new operating model that we're talking about here does it create value talk to me a little bit about what's the prize here what is the prize for success i don't know who wants to take a stab at that
4: oliver this shift to a new operating model creates value in in a number of ways it's First of all, it's very productive. We, we've all heard and discussed the fact that making, focusing on the right decisions, making the decision fast, saves a lot of time and money to the organization. So that typically translates to a productivity gain of anywhere between 20 and 40%. And that number has been steady across geographies, across sectors, sizes of company. That's what you would expect from that. But I, but I think the magic of this new operating model goes beyond that about 30 points of customer satisfaction. That is huge. And it's, it makes sense if you simplify, streamline, if you are faster to market, of course, your customers are going to be more satisfied. But perhaps more importantly, employee satisfaction measured on an ENPS basis is typically between 20 and thirty percent higher. And, and when you step back a little bit, you think there are very few things that a senior leader can do That is good for the productivity, for customer satisfaction, and results in higher engagement for employees. We we, we have been used to think there is an implicit trade-off between these different objectives. The removal of complexity from organization is the one thing that benefits all these objectives at the same time.
3: I would agree with that. I think Yuval Noah Harari, you know, had, had a wonderful comment. He says, you know, it's the nature of emergencies that they fast forward historical processes. And I think what we're seeing is actually this new operating model and this emergency, it's fast forwarding what would otherwise have taken years or even decades. But I think what we're seeing is that with this fast forward, we are going to have a whole new generation of winners and losers across industries. We are going to see, you know, further gaps widening up between the companies that really embrace some of these new approaches and, you know, are, are able to capture all these benefits that David just talked about versus the others, right? So this is a question, not just about how do you survive, but how do you succeed and thrive, right? And how do you really take advantage of this unfreezing moment?
1: That is, that's great to hear. What I hear you saying is, listen, listen, At the end of the day, there is very real value at stake here. Very real value across a number of dimensions, undoubtedly. I've also heard you saying throughout this conversation that this is not easy. This is a new way of working. This is a new operating model that needs to be in place. I heard you talking about 30 different discrete, different decisions that need to be made by the top team. So this is not easy, but there's real value at stake. So, Let me just round us out by asking each of you, if you are the CEO or you're the senior executive, what is that one piece of advice that you have for the senior executives listening to this uh, podcast? Hyejin, why don't you go first?
2: I'll ask. advise them to first go and see the proven cases, the companies who has already gone through the transformation and had a success or have an experience uh, of how to deal with the difficulties.
1: David?
4: My advice to senior leaders is to take the time to challenge all these orthodoxies we, we've we acquired over the years and to reflect on uh, given the opportunity to design for simplicity, how would we set up the business And answer that question before that window closes.
1: Mary.
3: So my one piece of advice is in this world where there is so much change and so much uncertainty, it's really important to take the time and to focus on learning, both individually and organizationally. And and I genuinely think that actually learning and a real focus, a lifelong learning mindset is going to be essential to survival and a key to success.
1: Thank you. Listen, Heijin, Mary, David, thank you so much for being such an engaging panel in this podcast. And uh, dear listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, we will see and hear you next time. Take care. You
0: have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking visit us at mckinsey.com slash futureofasia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.